This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We are very surprised, Mr. Nolan and I, to be coming to you from lockdown in the Bay Area. In the wake of some surprising developments over the past week in the coronavirus epidemic, now pandemic, it turns out that authorities in the Bay Area leapfrogged ahead of those in Sacramento and Washington and have everybody in most of the counties of the Bay Area shelter in place. We have been strenuously urged to uh, engage in social distancing. Well, everybody's been telling us that, but in seven Bay Area counties, they've decided to take it a step further. So it is that under these new orders by health officials in Alameda, Contra Costa, Marin, Santa Clara, San Francisco, San Mateo, and Santa Cruz counties, we're supposed to tend to our own knitting for the next two weeks. Law enforcement has noted that these directives are criminally enforceable, although they're saying they're only going to do that as a last resort. I'm pretty certain that if they catch you engaging in what's considered to be non-essential activities, they're not going to book you and haul you downtown. But when I say that, uh, I'm just uh, I'm just assuming and hoping that's the case. I mean, the East Bay Times is printing up a list of what you need to know about the shelter-in-place order. Things like, can I still visit my friends, significant others, or elderly relatives? The answer to that is the directive states that all non-essential travel is prohibited. So technically, that would include seeing friends and significant others who may live in another housing unit. Traveling to care for an elderly or minor relative or other vulnerable person in another household is allowed. That's, that's nice. To the question, can I go outside for a leisurely walk or exercise? The answer is yes. You're not going to get excited if you set foot outside for some much-needed fresh air. Contemplating what it's going to be like to have people cooped up with relatives for two weeks, I think a lot of that walking is going to be down to the liquor store. Yeah, they're saying things like you can go on a walk or exercise or take a pet to do its thing outside as long as you maintain good social distancing practices and stay at least six feet from any other person. In other countries, social distancing has translated to, I believe, a meter, which is only three feet. I guess better to be safe than sorry is the, um, is the motto of the day. In preparation for this program, which I knew could only be about the subject of coronavirus, although hopefully before we're finished today, we'll have a few other things to talk about. But in preparation, I called a lot of doctor friends to, to, to pick their brains, and <laughs> that was an interesting exercise. I asked an old med school pal who was still out there in the trenches seeing patients if he had anything to say or could add anything to this program. And he said, well, not really, but I'll be curious to see what you've got to say. A former colleague who I used to work with side by side uh, in, in, in the Sacramento area received a call from me. I asked him how it was going on Monday, and he said, well, I hadn't had all these follow-up on occupational medicine patients to see, I, this place would be, be dead. Which tells me that people are realizing that if you don't have coronavirus and go down to the clinic where it's pretty possible some people do, you may come home with it. When I worked in that clinic many years ago and there was the big issue of uh, avian flu, I suggested to the owner, my boss, you know, if it really gets bad, we should probably close. He said, you think so? I said, yeah. And he goes, you know, you got a point. I was curious as to what academic medicine has to say about this, so I called up uh, 
uh, a friend of mine's son, and also a friend of mine in his own right, to, uh, to ask him how things were going in medical school, and I received a very surprising answer. He's something like a couple weeks away from beginning the clinical years of medical training, where you transition from book learning to seeing patients, and I'm really surprised to find that he's been put on hold. Not only has he been put on hold, the other medical students who already are engaged in the clinical rotation, seeing patients, have also been sent home. And, and I'm, I'm a little surprised by that, although I suggested to him that I can imagine the reason for that might be the residents probably put their foot down. When I was in medical school, there was a, a very popular book that we, I think everybody in the class read. It was called The House of God. It was written by someone who had gone through his medical training and wrote about the experience. We all related to it because it kind of told it like it was, although I think members of the general public reading it would be stunned and shocked and disappointed. But at any rate, there was a a quote in there from one of the residents who said at one point, if you could bring him a medical student that would only triple his work, and I will kiss his feet. And it's true, one of the unwelcome duties of the medical resident is to try and have the medical student in tow and teach him a few things. Because as a resident, you're already pretty, pretty Busy. Another formal colleague wrote to say, can you believe how crazy this has become? The short answer to that is no, I can't. Information is power, and we live in an information age, and I think, unfortunately, there's so much bad information circulating and has been in the wake of this coronavirus outbreak that uh, uh, I think it has caused me to maybe discount things more than I should have. I've received a lot of communications from non-medical friends, in some cases urging me to wake up and smell the coffee, noting that things are really bad in Italy. And I have to admit, as I looked into it, it appears things really are bad in Italy. But it also seems clear to me that something odd is taking place in Italy. My friend Michael sent me a dashboard from, I think it's from the CDC, showing some of the latest statistics. And I noticed that although Italy has something like, at least as we we record today, something like 20,000 cases, Germany has like 8,000 ratio of about three to one. While the Italians have lost 2,000 patients, the Germans have only lost 14. And if you think we're going to make an Italian joke at this point, think again. I don't know what the explanation for that is, but I, I sure would like to. And of course, as the, as the weeks unspool, the next two weeks in particular, as we're under lockdown, everyone's going to be watching to see what the results are all across the world, country versus country, state versus state, jurisdiction versus jurisdiction. But As my medical school friend pointed out, it's going to be really hard to sort out the data because healthcare delivery is so different in all those countries. You have to factor that in. I said, yeah, I know, but believe you me, there's going to be a lot of analysis in the not-too-distant future. And man, do we need it. Now, I do want to note that I I don't really object so much to being locked down in theory. In part because my attitude is, I'm a doctor and I'm going to do what I want. And I suppose I should clarify that a bit. The fact of the matter is, for, you know, three decades of medical practice, yours truly would put on a lab coat, walk into a room with an infected person, sometimes 40 of them or 50 of them or 60 of them a day, physically examine them, come up with a treatment plan, write a prescription, etc., and send them on their way. And yeah, I went through a lot of, lot of hand cleaner over the years and washed my hands. I, well, just I can't even imagine how many times I've had to wash my hands over the years. Of course, we do have to note that if you want some waterless hand cleaner now, good luck, 
There are numerous workarounds, and as, as the weeks go by, we'll try and add some helpful hints to this situation for, for everyone. Uh, the stores are pretty much depleted of disinfectants, and most particularly waterless hand cleaner. But there's more than one way to sanitize a hand. I walked into my local liquor store, asked for the cheapest vodka they had, and walked out the door with a, a big bottle of hand sanitizer. Now, ideally, you want it to be 60% alcohol, and I could only get 100 proof. But as I say, in the weeks to come, we'll see if we can't to develop a formula for you that'll act as a substitute. Turned out, in my case, my neighbor, when I mentioned this dilemma, said, Oh, I've got some moonshine. I said, what percentage of alcohol? He said, I think it's 140 proof. I said, well, I'd be happy to take a bottle off your hands. So while holding my vodka bottle in reserve, it appears I now have some hand sanitizer based on, yeah, distilled liquor. And since we are going to try and keep this thing as positive as we can, at the very top of this program, which is right now, we should mention one helpful hint, which we received from our plumbing correspondent. He's been on the show before, Ivo Kovacevic. He's been a longtime uh, professional plumber in the Sacramento area. He uh, comes from Croatia, where in the past he said he's seen crises like these, such as when the government of Yugoslavia was uncertain where things were going to go after Josip Broz Tito, leader of Yugoslavia, passed away. He was visiting me a week and a half ago or so, oddly enough to work on one of my toilets, and as fate would have it, we made a trip down to uh, Lowe's and Costco to buy some needed items. And we're stunned to see the scene in Costco as a huge throng of people was buying the store out of toilet paper, which they were very successful at. And doing some shopping later in the day at Lucky's, I noted, well, look, they haven't gotten here yet, thinking foolishly that they wouldn't get there. But boy, have they in the meantime. At any rate, the subject of what do you do when you have no toilet paper came up with our friend the plumber, and he heartily endorsed the fact that newsprint is an adequate substitute. He said that's what they used to use back in the home country when TP supplies ran low, and it works fine. Does it clog the pipes? I asked the plumber, to which he responded, no, it's fine. However, from a comfort standpoint, he did have some key recommendations. Before you apply newsprint to your nether regions, you should crumple it up thoroughly. In fact, crumple it up several times to soften it and make it a little more rough. Supposedly, if you can add just a little bit of moisture, that'll, that'll help the whole process. So there it is. My suggestion to you, if you're facing a crisis in toilet paper, a very readily available and adequate substitute is your local newspaper. And a better one is an Asian bidet, which requires no paper at all. Thank you for that. That is true. I understand you're able to buy portable bidets you can put over your toilet, et cetera, et cetera. Bidets are good. And if the truth be told, there are, there are many ways that uh, this, this, this hygienic problem can be dealt with besides using toilet paper. We do have to insert that joke from Bill Maher who said recently, boy, if only Fox News had a print edition. Now, as this epidemic has been creeping up on us over the past few weeks, and actually by this point, last couple months, the authorities have been giving us various recommendations about how we should deal with it, and we're going to have a lot more to say about that momentarily. But it certainly appears that in the United States, and evidently in the UK, things kind of turned on a dime in the last week, supposedly in the wake of a non-peer-reviewed journal article 
from London's Imperial College's COVID-19 response team, which spent a lot of time on modeling the epidemic to conclude that more radical action was warranted and it was needed now. The author of the study, Imperial College professor Neil Ferguson, told CNN he wasn't sure how much the study influenced events here in the U.S., but apparently there are estimations that unless something was done immediately, there'd be 250,000 deaths in Great Britain and 1.1 to 1.2 million in the U.S. finally got people's attention. It seems pretty clear that some uh, misinformation coming out of China has really held the world back when it comes to uh, getting on top of this. As reported on this program a couple weeks ago, when the Chinese doctor who first discovered that something was up tried to get the news out, the authorities slapped him down pretty hard. The data coming out of China seemed to suggest that 80% of infections were mild, 15% were severe, perhaps requiring oxygen, and 5% were critical, requiring ventilation. Of course, we now know in the meantime that that set of numbers does not take into account people who are asymptomatic. And that, in fact, turns out to be one of the keys to this pandemic. I think we should talk about some of the particulars as relating to this disease. We also should note that a recent study by the National Institutes of Health on the virus shows that coronavirus can remain alive on plastic and steel surfaces for days. We should probably say alive in quotes because viruses are not really alive. They're little bits of DNA or RNA encapsulated with proteins and sometimes a little bit of fat that um, are waiting for live cells to come along to hijack them to reproduce themselves. So I guess what they're saying is it can, when it says it can survive, it means it can nevertheless reproduce. Uh, it doesn't do very well on a copper surface. Copper, of course, has uh, antiseptic qualities, which is one of the reasons why it's popular in plumbing. On a copper surface, the virus survives only four hours. On cardboard, it might last for a day or two, but on plastic or steel, can last for three days. And of course, we would say at this point you should be really zealous and disinfecting matters at this point, except where are you going to get the disinfectant? The hoarders have wiped out supplies of that as well. Hopefully you've got some uh, uh, Clorox or cleaning agents left around your house. And, uh, well, obviously this is the time to put them to good use. Many people are optimistic that since the warehouses have not been depleted, that uh, with a little bit of time we can get things restocked. We're being urged not to hoard, but uh, you know how people are. When I came across an interesting article by Justin Fox titled, How Bad is the Coronavirus? Let's Run the Numbers, and I think we should run some numbers. Said Julian Fox, the coronavirus outbreak has been turning a lot of us into amateur epidemiologists. Adding, just listen to Mick Mulvaney, the former real estate developer and member of Congress from South Carolina, who's now acting White House Chief of Staff. The flu kills people, he said just last week. This is not Ebola. It's not SARS. It's not MERS. It's not a death sentence. It's not the same as the Ebola crisis. Noted Justin Fox, all those statements are true. In the recent worst flu season we had in the United States, which was 2017-2018, an estimated 61,000 people died in the United States. Of course, to get numbers that high, you have to infect a lot of people. The death rate associated with the seasonal flu is being quoted these days as a tenth of a percent. I think in years when it's not a, a bad flu, it, it's, it's something like half that. And of course, what the fatality rate is for a disease determines, to a large extent, how we fear it. 
The fatality rate for Ebola virus is 50%. Some say two-thirds of the cases are fatal, but it's at least half. MERS, another coronavirus, which gave people Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, had a fatality rate of 34%. Smallpox used to kill 30% of the people that were infected. Oh, and by the way, we, we should note that smallpox is so far the only disease which medicine has eliminated from the face of the earth. And we did that through vaccinations. SARS, the other coronavirus, and in fact, COVID-19 is also considered a, a type of SARS, although quite distinct, had a fatality rate of 9.6%. We should note that SARS, which stood for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, was kind of a game changer in the world of coronaviruses. Back when I was treating patients during outbreaks of the common cold sweeping through the community, I was sometimes asked, Doc, what exactly do you think I have? Which I would say, well, it could be a rhinovirus, it could be a coronavirus, it could be an adenovirus, there's lots of viruses it could be. I don't know. Since we don't have any specific treatments for these various viruses, uh, it doesn't really matter in the end. Now, a virology lab could find out, if necessary, which one a person had with a cold, and they sometimes do if a person's very old and at the risk of being put in a ventilator and they want to know more about it for whatever reason, they, they may come up with an answer. But back in the 20th century, coronavirus was thought to be nothing more than a benign upper respiratory virus that, you know, basically never killed anyone. Well, I should say, almost never killed anyone. The fact of the matter is, dear listener, you've had coronavirus. If you take the time to check for antibodies in the blood against coronavirus, you'll find that over 90% of adults have them because it's, in fact, the number two cause of the common cold after the rhinovirus, causing something like 15% of all colds. But now we find ourselves in the 21st century, and apparently some coronaviruses that are in animals have jumped ship onto us. And the process is going to continue in the future as mankind uh, as it sees its population grow and grow and grow, forcing various human populations into wilderness areas where they come in contact with more wild animals. Or in the case of China, which has seen an exponential growth in the amount of animals raised for food in that country. I can't remember the exact number and all the, <laughs> among all the reading I've been doing of late, but it's, it's at least an order of magnitude versus what it was a generation ago in China, because as people become more prosperous and can afford to eat meat, they do so with gusto. Thus, in China, they're raising lots more animals than they used to, and they raise them in conditions that is not ideal because... Well, they have wild animals in the clinics, and that makes it easy for them to get from a wild animal population into us. Anyway, back to fatality rates. Measles kills two-tenths of a percent of people that contract it, which means it's not an entirely benign condition. Something needs to be pointed out to the anti-vaxxers. And then we're back to seasonal flu, a tenth of a percent. So COVID-19 is many multiples of that fatality rate versus seasonal flu. The best estimates we're going to talk about in a minute seem to be focusing around 0.5%, a half of 1%, versus a tenth of 1% for seasonal flu, which is, you know, five times worse. Not a happy situation, but nowhere near 
as frightening as the 3%, which was coming out of the original Wuhan outbreak. Now, another key thing in an epidemic is how contagious does the infected patient become? One way of measuring that is the r naught, which is the number of people expected to be infected by the patient. Some of them are pretty high. Measles was 15. Kid got measles, he was expected to infect 15 other kids. Measles would give you a bit of a cough, and apparently when you were coughing out droplets of measles virus, you were going to get it across the room. The r naught for SARS was thought to be 3.0. COVID-19, according to the same article by Justin Fox, is being estimated at 1.9. In other words, the infected person is expected to infect two others. In the case of the seasonal flu, it's lower, 1.3. It's interesting to note that SARS did not become the pandemic that the coronavirus is now in the midst of being. Even though the number for SARS was 3, and the number for COVID-19 is 2, basically. It is probable that SARS didn't become the epidemic that COVID-19 has become because it didn't become contagious until, until several days after symptoms appeared. Thus, actions taken during that period to isolate or quarantine ill patients can be effective to interrupt the transmission of the disease. But sadly, we now know that COVID-19 can be passed to people before you come down with symptoms and from people who never actually get sick. They're just asymptomatic carriers. A key question in all of this is what percentage of people can pick up COVID-19 before they become symptomatic. It's apparently a fairly low number. For SARS, it was less than 11%, probably much less according to the article. For influenza, on the other hand, it's between 30 and 50%, making it much harder to control that disease's spread. Which means if the COVID-19 epidemic was a flu epidemic, it would have it would be all over the world by now. Then again, it does appear that COVID has now reached every country on the world, so it's not that far behind. Nevertheless, since everybody apparently is not infectious while they're still asymptomatic, you can then gain an advantage by isolating people. The Chinese did this. They reduced the contact rate in China by forcing people to stay at home. This, in effect, reduced the duration of the infectious period by getting people out of, out of circulation for some of it, and of course, reduced the contact rate of running into other people. And it decreased the probability of infection given contact with the infected person. China at this point seems to have plateaued out in the coronavirus infection, no doubt due to their draconian approach, which is what we are now trying to imitate here in the U.S. of A. If you look at the graph of the disease spread and the fatality rate, uh, it's, it's, still, it's still going up exponentially. Which is why Mr. Millen and I are sitting in a lockdown area at the moment. The authorities figured if they jumped in now, they might be able to stop this. How well all of this is going to work, of course, remains to be seen. We're all taking part in a grand experiment. But uh, right now, it's, it's, it's pretty hard to find fault with the plan, particularly since yours truly plans to do whatever he wants. If friends and relatives need a little bit of help, I plan to get in the car and, and deliver it personally. Of course, the health authorities 
actually do approve of that. And one key question in all of this is, is how long before you come down with the infection after you've been exposed? The best answer at present seems to be three to five days, as far as I know, and they figured that in some extreme cases it may extend out to 10 or 11, which is why if they isolate somebody for 14 days, they pretty much think they've got your number. In other words, if you're going to get it, you're going to get it during that interval. By the way, one doctor friend of mine taking a look at this uh, sent an email out noting that uh, if it's true that what's going to kill people in a lot of cases with this virus is the overreaction of the immune system, can we not then save people by with, with some immune suppression, with steroids? And the best answer to that is that uh, people are aware of that possibility and are holding that as one of the therapeutic options. But uh, this is not something we recommend you, you try on your own. I want to thank Elise for sending me a very valuable uh, article about what is probably the best study to date on, on this question. A lot more to say in our second half about the, um, the fiasco of the testing kits here in America, which has made this whole crisis so much worse than it needed to be, I think. Well, let me clarify that. It's made the uncertainty in this crisis much worse than it needed to be. One thing we desperately need in this is data on testing the general population to find out how many actually have coronavirus. In a piece by Tina Hesman-Say titled, Cruise Ship Outbreak Helps Pin Down How Deadly the New Coronavirus Is, piece starts out saying exactly how deadly COVID-19 is remains up in the air. Limited testing and undetected cases, people with no symptoms or one so mild they don't seek medical attention, make it hard to pin down how many are infected. And that number is crucial for calculating the ratio of people who may die. Enter the Diamond Princess cruise ship, quarantined at sea off Japan after a passenger tested positive for SARS-CoV-2, which we're now calling COVID-19. The ship became a natural data lab where nearly everyone was tested and few cases of infection were missed. In this case, the infections and death on board suggest the disease true fatality ratio in China was about 0.5%, which is a lot less scary than the 3.4% of confirmed cases that were cited on the basis of the initial data coming out of China. And that, in fact, is a bit of good news. Another bit of welcome news is that we're going to take a pause for a short break at this point. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Please don't go away. we got lots more to talk about. I'm your radio doctor, Douglas Everett. Well, today anyway. 